This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Ah, welcome to another live broadcast of Cascade of History here on Space 101.1 FM, the all-volunteer community radio station that punches far above its weight at 101.1 on the FM dial, but also streaming at space101fm.org. Now welcoming our listeners in the Evergreen State, as well as Oregon, Idaho, and British Columbia for our hour-long exploration of Pacific Northwest history live like we do every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Pacific time. I'm Felix Bunnell. Uh, I got a typically show, typically packed full show this week as usual. We always try to do too much. Um, we need to do some sort of meditations for history shows that try to do too much to try to uh, achieve a better work-life balance. But um, we're going to be talking to a bunch of fabulous people on this week's show. Uh, we're going to talk to Idaho uh, columnist and historian Tim Woodward. He's written a number of books. He's been a columnist for The Statesman for a really long time. Um, we'll talk to him a little bit later on. We'll talk to Brandon Rainin from the Puyallup Tribe about a little mini-museum they've opened up uh, down on, the, on tribal lands down there um, south of Seattle, near Tacoma, and some other projects they have in the works. And then we're going to catch up with Anthony Long from the Museum of History and Industry. They have a project they've been doing every year now, I think since 2020 when the pandemic started, called the Everyday Hero Project. So we'll learn about that and how you can nominate um, someone you think is an everyday hero to be honored by the Museum of History and Industry here in Seattle. We also have the, all the stuff we've been getting to lately with uh, that Washington at Work program from 1938, where we examine the history of the old J.C. Penney building. And there's just a few more installments left. And, and as if careful listeners have noticed that the tease each week, sort of the cliffhanger of each little two-minute episode, gets lamer and lamer. Do you remember how last week's episode ended? Yes, a gentleman standing whose name, as I recall, is Roe. Is that That's correct? Right. Yes, sir. So I think he said his name is either Roe or Roy, and it wasn't even really a cliffhanger. I have to apologize, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to the next installment. It's not the final. I think last week I said we might be hitting the final installment. I think this is the penultimate episode. So we'll have more from the Washington at Work episode from KMO, KOMO Radio from 1938 on the eve of the grand opening of the JCPenney in downtown Seattle. Um, and then we're going to be hitting the old uh, viewer mailbox. Uh, talking about a, a big, kind of in general, about um, what happens when a local beloved company is bought out by a big national company. And this stems from a visit I made last night to the old, uh, well, we'll talk about it. It's an old location on the, on the University Way that's different than the last time I saw it a few months ago. But before all that, I want to bring on, let's see if we can get him on the phone here. Randy Dixon, can you hear me? I can. Can uh, you hear me? Yeah, terrific. Hey, thanks for joining us. That's Randy Dixon's over in Pocatello, Idaho. And I stumbled across some work that your group is doing there. Um, yeah, this is, and you and I first spoke a week or so ago about your interest in neon and how you in Pocatello, Idaho there, which is a couple hours east of Boise, so pretty far away, and you're in the mountain time zone, so you always get extra credit when you join this show at, after <laughs> 9 o'clock on a Sunday night. Um, but you're, what, what's this group that you have in Pocatello, Idaho, and what is it that you're doing with neon signs over there? Well, we have a group called Relight the Night, and we are a committee of historic downtown Pocatello. And in 2012, we formed a committee to talk about the possibility of restoring our historic chief theater neon sign. The, the chief theater was built in 1938, served the community well, closed as a theater in 1982. We saw the, the theater donated to, uh, the, to the city of Pocatello by the owner, a man in Denver. And uh, we turned it into a performing arts center. It took quite a while. In 1983, we didn't even get the doors open until uh, in 1988, August 4th. But anyway, we operated successfully, had a beautiful time restoring this great-looking motif 
theater. It's wonderful. But it burnt to the ground in 1993, wow. March 20th. Wait, what it was, was, it was what, horrific. What was the cause of the fire? Did they ever figure out what the, what the cause was? Electrical of some sort. You know, it, uh, it, it got, we're, never did really figure out. I was the president of the, of the Chief Foundation, a board that uh, was founded to actually restore and maintain and operate the, the uh, theater by the city of Pocatello. Mm. And I had, and I operate, I saw the doors open. We opened the doors in 1988 uh, with a, with a local theater company doing uh, the death and life of Sneaky Fitch. So that was the yeah. beginning of all of this. So wait, wait, and, wait, wait, I want to pause for a second because where, do you recall, I mean, you must, I mean, you must, the answer to this must be yes. And if, if you're willing to share the story, I'd be really curious. Do you know where you were when you got the news that the theater was either on fire or had actually burned down? I was, uh, I was, in bed. It was two o'clock in the morning, and I got a phone call from one of our volunteers oh, geez. Who, uh, who actually had a fireman for a husband, and she called up and said, Randy, you better come. The chief's burning down. And oh, I, man. I, I, I lived about six blocks away from from it in historic downtown Pocatello, Old Town. And I threw my clothes on, and I walked out the back door, and it was like the raging inferno from six blocks away the entire the, the, the sky was red. Uh, I could not force myself to go and watch it burn. I, I couldn't. I went back to bed. And, uh, and of course, the next morning, it, it all came to, to pass. I mean, it took a day to put it out. It was a huge fire. Yeah. All of that to be said. Wait, but stup- I got to ask a really stupid question. I mean, you, can, can you, you kind of answer this by saying you went back to bed because you couldn't take it. I mean, what did it feel like that more that next morning when it really sank in? What had happened to the thing you'd been working on at that point for, what, five or six years? And you'd been attending movies there since you were a kid, I think, right? Right, right, correct. Actually, the theater was built in 38, and I, I started going there with my family in about 1954. We saw everything in the world there. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was a Fox Movie Corporation theater, and it was really, it was really something. And it was the heart of the community, 1,245 seats. It was beautiful. Indian motif throughout and this beautiful neon sign on front of it, and it was just—it was horrifying. To, the, 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 the community was in was in shock for a month. Well, actually, what happened was the 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 only thing that survived the, the fire was the facade, the front half of the building, the lobby, and the rest of the. It was just a total loss, mm. uh, and. Uh, Anyway, the city of Pocatello made the decision to remove the sign from the front of the facade, and they put it in storage on the ground in an airport, uh, at our local airport. And there it stayed in storage for 10 years. And then they finally decided to move it inside. I'll text you a picture of the sign sitting outside. <laughs> Actually, it was, it was just devastating. Well, in 2012, a committee of historic downtown Pocatello was formed to actually look into the possibility of finding a place for that sign. And, and you know, we had no idea what, what we were up against. And we just started talking. And, we, you know, we, we, it turns out that the, the, part, the building was now a parking lot. You know, how, how apropos, you know. Mm, yeah, but the city had, main, had maintained a small 10 by 20 easement on the front of the thing on the front of the property and we came up with the concept to have a 40 foot tall structural uh base built uh 10,000 pounds of concrete underneath it it was it was a massive project $110,000 we mm-hmm. had we had uh, yesco do the, the sign and uh it was it, it was just amazing to see that thing come back to life um I'll have to share pictures of, of the thing being restored and not that. Yeah, share those with me, and I'll put those on the Cascade of History Facebook page so people can see what you're talking about. But um, so is that so? so was, was that, that that was the that was our first sign. That was the first sign. Yeah. That we that we restored. We had no idea we were going to be in the business of restoring signs. <laughs> what we did is we we had a mission statement that we formed that we formed that said our first project will be the restoration of the chief theater sign 
And we were actually able to put it in its exact location at its exact height of 50 feet. I mean, really a a massive project, and I just can't believe we did it. Yeah, it's pretty Uh, amazing. well, and it only it only happened because there were these sets of circumstances. The city of Pocatello became part of this. We can we found funding from a historic preservation fund, and uh, the mayor was involved. And we moved ahead, and we we restored that sign, and we relit it on November 29th of, of uh, 2013. Hmm. And basically. Uh, we we just were very thankful that we made it happen. It was amazing to see that sign come back to life. We had 3,500 people in the street, and we did a countdown, and we have this hokey switch that we created so we could do a <laughs> countdown and turn it on. It, it's really, it was a project in the half. Now, for someone who hasn't, we'll, we'll put pictures and stuff up, but take a moment here and kind of paint a picture. Describe the sign from top to bottom, what it looks like. Well, I mean, obviously it's a very, very handsome Native American chief with uh, the word chief on, on, and this is two-sided, underneath that, and then 500 light bulbs in five arrows that strobe down. So it's it's amazing, and it sits on this this architectural base. It's it's really a thing of beauty. We've got some pretty good national notoriety for this thing. Yeah, it sounds sounds wonderful. But, But here's the key to all of this. We made this happen by involving the city of Pocatello, the engineering department, the code department, and you know, our, our historic downtown Pocatello committee uh, went out and found funding for ongoing maintenance of the, th- of the, the sign. But this is the point I'm getting at. What we said in our mission statement was, once we get the chief theater sign lit, we will continue the sensible restoration and repair of other historic neon signs in downtown Pocatello. And we had, we had two actually, and before the chief relit, we had two businesses that go way back into the 50s that had still had neon working, and we had a number of historic, historic signs that were dark and not very pretty. And what we did was we made the decision to move ahead one at a time. And that's what the key is. I mean, this doesn't happen overnight. We, we, the next sign we did was we, we restored, and I think you've even seen our Greyhound, running Greyhound uh, neon sign. Uh, if you haven't, you, you'll find that on our Relight the Night Facebook page, which I ask you to visit. It'll give you a lot of confirmation mm-hmm. as to what we've been up to. But that was the first one, and it just kept on happening. So was, what, on. when did you know that this was going to become more than just the chief or a couple other signs and it would become this thing that Pocatello is now starting to become known for as a, like a, a cultural tourism destination for neon signs? Sort of in, what I like about it is it's in their natural habitat. This isn't a museum where things are all corralled in a warehouse, which is fine, and there's plenty of museums like that, or at least a handful anyway. But this oh, is yeah. like this is neon in its natural habitat, which is pretty amazing. When did you sort of figure yeah. out that that was going to be the thing? Well, you know, I, I, I became committee chair right off the bat. And, uh, you know, I was I just retired, so I had the time. And we, we basically kept meet, meeting as a committee after the chief came back to life and started discussing our future plans. And we identified one sign, then another, then another, then another. And, you, you know, the way this works is... Each sign has its own set of circumstances, and you, and you don't rely on them if you don't know who owns the sign, mm-hmm. if you don't know the history of the sign, if you don't know who's going to pay for the restoration, if you don't know who's going to pay for the ongoing maintenance, and last and most importantly, who's going to pay for the power. And if, <laughs> what we've had to do is we have had to, and we came up with that concept with the chief sign right off the bat. We we. We knew that those were the key ingredients to successfully relighting another sign. And we answered every one of those questions before we started another project. Hmm. And each, each sign sat on its own. I mean, no two sets of circumstances, say, different owners, city owned. The city owns actually the Chief Theater sign. They own the Greyhound Bus Depot sign. They had they had the Greyhound Bus Depot and used it as a regional transit hub for, until they built a new place. And, and we went to them in 2015 and said, listen, why don't you let us do a service call just to figure out what it's going to take? That's the way it all starts. You start with a service call to say, okay, what's it going to take to light this sign up? How much? 
And so we went to the city of Pocatello, the, the, the regional transit authority uh, man, and said, why don't you let us do a service call, figure out what it's going to take to light up the Greyhound, and we'll do that as long as you continue to pay the power. And they do the same thing with the Chief, by the way. It's on its own meter, and so is the Greyhound. Uh, and so that was the, the second sign that we brought back to life after, after all of that. And, and, and you, just, uh, you guys just did a big walking tour a couple weekends ago, on a, I think on a Friday night. And I, I haven't talked to you since that walking tour happened. Tell, tell us what it was and, and how it went. It was phenomenal. It started at the Chief. Uh, our historic downtown is, has really made some strides in the last decade. I mean, it's, it's pretty dang hip. <laughs> and it's full of history. And, and the, neon, the neon is at the core of it. And so what we had was we, we developed a walking tour. And I, myself and, a, and a, uh, a, we developed a walking tour brochure with the help of somebody who was a good graphic artist and into neon, actually from Arcadia, Oklahoma. Hmm. She, and I, she and I designed the walking tour brochure. And so we finally got that kicked out the first of the year. And... What we decided to do was have an inaugural walking tour, and we did that on on this last Friday, uh, or a week ago last Friday. 250 people. I mean, I, it was a walking tour, and I was trying to communicate with everybody about the history because I was talking about the history of everyone in the science because I know it. And but <laughs> I, I I wouldn't say more than about a hundred people could hear me. Mm-hmm. And so. In that, but they had a walking tour brochure in their hand, which said, "This is the chief. This is 1938." Blah blah blah. And then we moved down the street to the next sign and went all the way around, 1.6 miles. Beautiful crowd. Yeah. People loved it, and we're we're just really proud of the fact that it, we wouldn't have been able to do this without community donations. I mean, we've raised a lot of money over a period of years. It's not easy. I always say, uh, if I never sell another raffle ticket, it will be too soon, and I mean that. <laughs> and for for people, you know, and I guess and I understand the idea is this walking tour. You don't have to wait till it's offered one night out of the year. You can pick up the brochure, get it online, and people can go anytime they want and, and tour around Pocatello. What what is exactly. what, what's the quick history for Pocatello? Why is Pocatello there? What's its what's its brief history? I, we just got a, got a minute or two here, but can you kind of sh- fill in the background on why Pe- Pocatello was there? Well, Pocatello was a railroad town. I mean, the UP was here back in the turn of the last century, and that's what it's all about. I mean, that was the core of it, the UP, Union Pacific. I see. Okay. And so uh, we've always been kind of been considered a blue-collar town because of our, you know, back in the day when there was, you know, coal-fired engines, uh, it, 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 it was smoky here, you know, <laughs> <laughs> until they started using diesel. And so... <laughs> that's that's the, the core of it all. We we are one of three universities. Idaho State University is here. Ah, uh, okay. We're a city of about fifty six thousand, but our our hub is about seventy thousand. We're we're one hundred and sixty miles north of Salt Lake. We're one hundred and sixty miles from the Tetons. We're one hundred and sixty miles from Yellowstone Park. And we're very centrally located. If you want to come tour. This part of it. it might be another reason why you could come here and see our neon and then go on. Uh, yeah. So that's what we're all about. And, and the city is is actually it does okay. <laughs> it's it's yeah. not the biggest city. It used to be the third large, second largest city. That is now the fifth. You oh. know, there's oh, a, wow. Boise. Boise is a, just a metropolis and a half in this day and age. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Very. But that's that's who we are, uh, and we're we're proud of ourselves here. You know, we're. We don't like to be referred to as a blue-collar town with no class because we have it, yeah. and well, and that's well, that's pretty cool, you know, because neon neon sort of has blue-collar roots, and it but it's kind of it moved, obviously moved beyond that where it's you know it's 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 considered artwork now and it's considered sort of American commercial vernacular artifacts. So, I mean, listen, con- congratulations for what you guys have done. Let's let you and I stay in touch. Love to have you back on the show again sometime in the future, maybe maybe in the fall, and talk about some of your other sign acquisitions. And I will share those pictures and links and stuff at the Cascade of History Facebook page. But in the meantime, um, Randy Dixon with Relight the Night in Pocatello, Idaho. Thanks for joining us on, on this Sunday night live broadcast uh, all the way from Pocatello, Idaho on Cascade of History. Really appreciate you joining us all the way from the mountain time zone. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> hey, have a good night, Randy. We'll talk to you soon, okay? Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.
Randy Dixon from Relight the Night in Pocatello, Idaho. Yeah, that, that is definitely worth a trip there to see the neon signs. It's the, we'll put pictures at, at uh, the Cascade of History Facebook page, which if, if you haven't liked yet, you definitely should. Same goes for the Space 101.1 FM Facebook page, too. This is just one of many shows that are on this station all throughout the week, every evening, every day. There's interesting stuff going on, all produced by volunteers who are here in the Seattle area because we care about our community, we care about connecting with our friends and neighbors, and we care about putting on shows like Cascade of History. So anyway, uh, coming up next, we're going to be talking to uh, Tim Woodward. You're kind of continuing our Idaho theme tonight. But before we do that, I want to get to our next segment here in the, uh, the J.C. Penney uh, Washington at Work program from 1938. It, let's, I want to refresh people's memory. Remember what happened at the end of last week's episode? Do you remember what happened? Yes, a gentleman standing whose name, as I recall, is Rowe. Is that That's correct? Right. Yes, sir. All right, so here we go and find out even more about that lame tease for this week's episode. Yes, sir. Bill Rowe? Right. Well, Bill, you're in charge of the advertising department. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the responsibility of keeping the public informed as to what's going on here at J.C. Penney's. We try to. Uh, is it quite a job? Well, it's uh, getting to be. Yeah. Getting to be. You look quite serene, seraphic, and salubrious. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't look as if the cares of this world are tearing you down. Oh, no. You enjoy the work. Very much so. Exactly what do you have to do in advertising? Well, we have to plan our events. Buy our merchandise for it, but the customers, which the customers want, and that's the advertising for the customers. I see. Well, now, um, what about the layout work? Do you do that yourself, or do you supervise yes. it? Yes, I do it myself. That's the newspaper layout work. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, about how long does it take for you to conceive uh, an advertising page that goes into a newspaper? Is that quite a lengthy kind of a chat? Well, it all depends. You naturally, when you buy your merchandise, you have they thought they're behind how you're going to present it to the public. And uh, some ads take a short while, other ones take a long while. I see, but uh, the, the real answer is you really you enjoy doing it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much, Bill Rowe. And if Bob will lead the way, we will find our way out of the advertising department and into Mr. Mack's office. Now, Washington Work has been very happy today to assist in welcoming into Seattle industry. Tomorrow, uh, this handsome addition to the retail structure of Seattle business. As a payroll builder, of course, but as more than a payroll builder, as a visible and concrete evidence of the confidence the management of this company is expressing in the Pacific Northwest. Now, more than any other one man, it's possible that Mr. George Mack, the manager of the Seattle store, is responsible for this growth and expansion. When Penny's opened their first downtown store in Seattle back in 1931, he it was who was chosen from a large field of proven successful managers for the job. It's more than appropriate then that we bring Mr. Mack to the microphone now for his comments on the opening of this new store. Mr. Mack, uh, you're a longtime resident of Seattle, aren't you? Well, you know how it works. We're going to have to wait until next week to find out if he is, in fact, a longtime resident of Seattle. Well, you know, the way this show works sometimes, uh, we have, we're a live show, and sometimes we reach out to the guests and we arrange for them to be on the show, but then they fall asleep or otherwise fall off the face of the earth. And that seems to be the case with Tim Woodward out of Idaho, uh, the columnist for the Statesman and longtime writer of uh, several different history books related to Idaho and uh, a uh, promoter of a particular uh, update to the Idaho State song. So I don't think Tim's there. I think he might have, might have checked out for the evening. So we'll have to try and get him back at another time. But that's okay. Live radio, that's the fun thing. That's why if you're listening to the podcast right now, this is kind of boring because you know that you know, probably know how it turned out. But if you're listening live at home uh, in, in the range of the transmitter here for Space 101.1 FM, or if you're streaming this in the, somewhere in Oregon or Idaho or British Columbia, you're hanging on my every word, wondering what I'm going to do to get myself out of this jam I've gotten into. But, you know, no need to fear. Radio is, if it's nothing if it's not super adaptable to changing circumstances. So what I'm going to do is call an audible and open up the uh, viewer mail segment here. Uh, so, okay, so I mentioned I was on the university, university way last night in the university district after going to a show at the Neptune, and I walked over to the corner of 45th in university, um, actually, roving correspondent Ken Zick was there as well. Um, but uh, the Bartell Drugstore that's been on the corner of University Way and 45th for a really long time, uh, it's closed. There's a, you know, I, think I, I think I posted a photo at, at the Cascade of History Facebook page. Um, 
I remember shopping there, I don't know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I think that might have been, as, as a kid in Kirkland, where we didn't have a Bartell Drugs, when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, um, that might have been the first Bartels. Eh, maybe I went to one in downtown Seattle. Anyway, it's one of the earlier Bartels that I went to, and it's just been a fixture on the Ave. I, I shop there at Christmas time. I shop there all, you know, throughout the year. It's closed now. Um, and people might remember a couple of years ago, I think it was late in 2020, that Bartels, a family-owned company for... Oh, I think since 1890, sold to Rite Aid um, for millions of dollars because, you know, there was lots of reasons. They, they think, thought it was a good time to sell. The pandemic had done a lot to their business, and it was just a good time to sell. And that's fine. It's a private company. There's, there's no law against that, of course. Um, anyway, but people have been sort of watching and pointing, and it's hard to separate out the the differences in Bartell drugs that are caused by the pandemic versus the Rite Aid purchase Versus, uh, versus just what any retail business has been facing these days with um, limited, limited availability of staff or supply chain issues and stuff. So anyway, I posted, a, posted that picture and I asked people to respond with sort of general comments about um, that notion of, you know, how do you feel when a big, beloved local company gets bought out by a big national company? And let's see... Um, a guy named Kevin said, all retail is adjusting. A lot of these chains are going to shut down because rents are going up and brick and mortar shopping is down. I suppose that's true. Uh, let's see. Karen said, um, the Av Bartel store. I had spoken at length to the regional manager last summer and was assured the location wasn't closing. Both he and his local assistant were charming. Um, and then she says some things. That are a little too negative. I'm not going to read those. Um, and then, but I, what I liked about her main, the main part I liked about her comment was what she ended it on was we should resurrect Geo Guy, which of course is an old local chain that hasn't been in business for a really long time. Uh, Gary Gary said, as sad as Bartell has become, I truly cannot stand CVS and Walgreens, so I will just grit my teeth and continue to shop at my local Bartell slash Rite Aid. And I think that's probably the camp that I'm in right now. I still know the people at my local Bartell Drugs, and I like them. And it's, it doesn't matter that they have a different owner. I mean, I still, you know, I've been shopping there for 25, 30 years. So uh, let's see. Um, uh, Mindy said, I watched the shelves at the three I still patronize, and slowly but surely they debartelsify into really Rite Aid. Most of the staff members will vocally acknowledge how descriptive word of your choice everything is. <laughs> um, then probably my favorite comment of all uh, Charles R. Cross, the author and historian, he said, yeah, of course, in terms of which I kind of I posed the picture as a question, like which location is this? Kurt Cobain's manager for a brief while lived upstairs. So that was a Bartels, you could say, Nirvana slept upstairs. So sad to see what happens to Bartels, not the same. All right. So that we're, with that, we'll close the <laughs> viewer mail mailbox for this episode of Cascade of History live on Space 101. 101.1 FM and streaming at space101fm.org. Um, I didn't make it there this weekend, but I don't know. Some Maybe some of you stopped by the Space 101 FM uh, booth at the University District Street Fair. I, I saw some photos. looked like people were having a really good time. If you did stop by, thank you for stopping by. I hope you grabbed a sticker or something like that. Um, all right. Now, before we get talk to uh, Brendan Ra- Brandon Rainin from the Puyallup Tribe, I wanted to play a little audio clip this is a story I first stumbled across. I heard the oh, it was a CBC radio program maybe eight, nine years ago talking about these series of concerts that Paul Robeson, the great baritone, African-American performer from the mid-20th century and, you know, uh, very left-leaning <laughs> socialist, probably a communist, um, blacklisted kind of guy. Uh, he had tried to tr- travel from the U.S. into Canada by way of the Peace Arch crossing at Blaine and they'd, they'd taken away his passport and told him he wasn't going to be allowed to travel to Canada to perform a concert for the mine workers up there as part of a big strike. And so I, they drove back to Seattle. He sang, he, he did a concert by telephone, like sang into the phone, and they played it on a big loudspeaker at this concert. And then he and his management or manager or somebody hatched a plan to put on a live concert on the back of a truck right there at the Peace Arch at Blaine. And so on May 18th, 1952, and then uh, in subsequent years, I think they did it in like two or three more times up to 1955. Paul Robeson got up, said a few words about, you know, what America meant to him and what he was doing in terms of the solidarity forever with the mine workers and everybody else. And he sang a concert. 
And so there's a recording that I tracked down. Uh, I don't know. I did a story about this for the other radio station about six or seven years ago and talked to an expert in, um, in, uh, in Paul Robeson and talked to the uh, woman up there who runs the uh, nonprofit around the Peace Arch. But as far as I know, there's still no monument or no marker that says that these series of concerts happened up there. But we do have this audio monument. I want to take a couple minutes and listen to Paul Robeson at the Peace Arch, a concert described as the Woodstock of the McCarthy era. Paul Robeson at the Peace Arch singing uh, that great labor song, Joe Hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I am standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize, went on to organize. Joe, he ain't dead, he says to me. Joe Hill ain't never died Where working men defend their rights Joe Hill is at their side Joe Hill is at their side From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find Joe Hill it's there you find Joe I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. Robeson singing at the Peace Arch at Blaine, Washington on May 18, 1952 for that great uh, cross-border concert. The crowds gathered on both sides of the border. Paul Robeson couldn't cross because he didn't have his passport um, because it had been taken away by the State Department because they thought he was a uh, he was a little too left-leaning for their tastes back in that uh, McCarthy era. So um, we'll, we'll play more from There's a CD that I, I don't know if you... If, it must probably online as well, too, but there are several songs that were recorded, all those great sort of wobbly songs like uh, Joe Hill that were recorded from that 1952 concert. And it's just a, it's a, a crazy piece of Northwest history that I love highlighting whenever I get a chance. So, all right. Well, coming up next, we're going to speak with, see if we can get Brandon Raynon on the phone here. Let's see here. Brandon, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Uh, Hello. Thanks for joining us here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. You're the director and the tribal historic preservation officer for the Puyallup tribe. Correct. All right. And um, you and I, we've, we've talked a few times over the years and about different, like around the National Archives stuff and around uh, uh, Mount Rainier renaming efforts and that sort of thing. But what, what caught my eye, eye recently was something that I saw about a mini-museum that you guys have recently opened? Yes. Yeah, we opened up the mini-museum uh, last month. Um, we are, uh, you know, it, it's, really, it's really a reopening of the museum. We had a museum uh, at the... Cushman Cascadia building back in the 19 early 1980s all the way up through 2002 when the Cushman building closed 
uh, all the artifacts and museum stuff was then put in storage. And uh, back in 2015, and my staff and I, you know, we we're like, this, it's time for these things to come home. <laughs> uh, the uh, the artifacts were being, you know, they were just put in a storage unit, and the storage unit wasn't temperature controlled or anything. And so we would periodically go down and check on them, and uh, you know, the we noticed that they were slowly, you know, beginning to, to deteriorate and to uh, to break and that sort of thing. And we said, you know, it's time to get, to get these home. And so we, uh, 2017, we um, were able to uh, get a grant that allowed us the funding to uh, to bring the, the artifacts home. And then we, from that point forward, we were uh, doing this little mu- mini museum. We, um, you know, ran into, as anyone who starts a museum knows, uh, there are a thousand unforeseen hurdles that you have to get over. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we finally got over all those. Um, you know, I have a, I have a tremendous staff. Uh, and the first uh, one that we got to, I do, we got to do a shout out to is Amber Taylor. Um, she, um, with, without her on, on the staff, this mini museum would not have happened. She, she personally put in a lot of extra hours, um, more than more than any of us did and uh you know she went through that uh, museum text and all the photos with with you know with her expertise and her care and uh put her real her real touch on on this museum so um you know w- without her work we wouldn't have this this beautiful space that we have to showcase our history and so how can people see it what's when are you guys open when's where is it actually located so we're actually in Fife uh we're in the Salish the Puyallup Tribe Salish Cancer Center building it, it it it's a it's a weird place to have a museum. Uh, we're on the third floor. Um, it's kind of a hodgepodge building. It's not just for uh, medical care, but uh, so we're up on the third floor, suite three eleven. Uh, we are located off of Pacific Avenue and Fife. And because we're an office building, we do also have really weird hours. But we are only open uh, Tuesday to Friday, ten a.m. to four p.m. Okay. Um, we're closed Mondays for uh, exhibit maintenance and and that such, but. Um, yeah, so 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., Tuesday through Friday. And, and we're, go ahead. No, no, keep going, keep going. Uh, we are, um, we know we're, we're open more, we're geared more towards uh, middle school and high school and, and of course, the adults. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, it, you know, it's not something that is really good for the the younger kids, you know, 11 and under. Yeah. Um, so, but if they do come, 11, 11 under is free. Uh, PLP trouble members are, are free as well. Um, and then general public general public is five dollars. Okay, that's, that's certainly affordable. Now, what yeah. what what kinds of artifacts or, or what are some notable artifacts that people will see if they come to see the the mini museum? You know, we are uh, we were a fishing people, and so we right right as you walk in, um, you're greeted by a, a basket um, that was used. Um, it has still it, it's actually a berry basket, but. Um, in 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 the in the basket itself, you can still there are still seeds from um, the berries that were picked Neat. Um, back in the, the in the the basket dates to about the late 1800s. So um, it's, it's a very old basket, but it's it's a beautiful basket. It really shows the the amount of care, the the, the skill that our basket makers had, and so mm-hmm. that's what you're greeted with um, because the, we are such. It's only 800, 850 square foot space, and so. We had to really choose between being artifact heavy or being, um, you know, the opposite. And we went with the opposite, um, and so we are very photo um, heavy mm-hmm. uh, with, with text. But we do have paddles, uh, adzes, um, you know, other small artifacts that were made of, you know, reason, uh, you know, picking berries uh, for making utensils. Yet we have um, a bone game set. So I mean, there's. Just mm-hmm. so there are small artifacts all throughout, but we're a very heavy uh, photo and, and yeah, tech. That makes perfect sense. And and how long has the Puyallup tribe been collecting or having like people like you doing working on on history and museum exhibitions and things like that? Is that relatively recent? Or yeah, this you know we we had we had one curator uh, Mary Frank, and then of course uh, Judy Wright uh, in the through the seventies and eighties up in the through uh, through the two th- early two thousands, um, but. And so we, we, we've had them specifically, but it's been over the, probably the past 10, 12 years um, that we really had a, a staff that focuses on, uh, you know, gathering uh, information, gathering history, and, and then spreading it to the membership and to the general public. 
And for someone who maybe someone knows nothing about Puyallup tribal history, can, is it? I mean, can you give us kind of a sort of the, the encapsulated version or the like? You know, what do, what do people say? Like, tell me the history of the Puyallup tribe. Okay, that's well, a big. I know it's a big question. I, I get that. I'm not like you know. I'd love to be on for the. Yeah, you know, I know it would take several weeks to probably give it do yes, it justice. Right. But I. But you know what? I, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we tell people you know we've been around. We have been here for the time of memorial, so that's before time, and uh, we we've lived here. Um, from the from Hood Canal to the uh, Cascade Mountains, from the Green River down to the Nisqually River, those have all been our and all the islands and, and prairies in between. You know, so that, yeah. that's where we've lived. Um, we've we've suffered uh, from 1792 um, up until you know through today on on treaty rights and and, and you know just basic things like being able to fish. You know, we went to battle in the 1850s for um, the right to, to gather, the right to fish, the right to live. And that battle continues, um, you know, up to fishing rights. Again, we, we the hunting rights, our hunting grounds are continuously being shrunk. Um, yeah. We, we have to continually fight for, um, you know, the, 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 to the fish. Um, you know, with, you know, we're, we're limited to, to nets while commercial fishermen are able to use things, you know, and so, uh, we were constantly had to fight for um, the the survival of the salmon, um, but uh, we, as far as the history of the Puyallup tribe goes, you know we've um, we've been through it all from yeah. uh, the worst of the worst that you can think of for from uh, you know manifest destiny to genocide. Uh, we've been able to um, prevail and and be able to uh, withstand all of those worst. Um, scenarios to to be here today, and so as uh, you know, as far as history goes, we we're still here. That's one that's one of the things we preach. Yeah, uh, we're we're still here uh, d- despite the best efforts of of those of those early settlers and the government. Um, the Puyallup tribal people have have uh, fought, persevered, and we're still here today. Um, you know, we're still we're still speaking our language. We're still. Uh, gathering in our areas, we're still living on the land that has always been ours since time immemorial. I, I want to ask you about the language stuff, and but before you go for the that difference between the the kind of nets that you described, is there an easy way to explain that to a radio audience? The different kinds of nets that, that you're the the tribal the tribes allowed to use versus the commercial. Yeah, so we have just your standard. Uh, I mean, when you think of a when you think of a fish net, um, that's what we that's what our fishermen are, are permitted to use. Uh, we've but we, we've used that style of net for like again thousands of years from you know when we wow. were first placed here by the creator. Um, so it, it's something we've always used. But commercial commercial fishermen are used are allowed to use. They're called thanes, and I'm not a, a fisherman myself, but it, um, they're the the big. They can catch thousands of fish at a time, where we I can see. only catch you know a couple hundred at a time. So on on a good on a good trip, but you know these. Commercial fishermen can thousands and thousands of uh, fish are permitted. They're they're legally, uh, you know, permitted. They're not only catching fish; they're catching other things as well. So yeah, they're they're a huge danger and a huge uh, problem for the the salmon habitat, the salmon species themselves, but other other marine uh, mammals as well. Is it possible to characterize, like, sort of, you know, kind of the big general, like how things are now compared to how they were like ten, twenty years ago in terms of? Um how tribes are respected or not respected or, you know, given whether it's the state government at Olympia or the federal government. And I mean, with Deborah Holland as secretary of interior, it seems really promising. I, I saw her speak up at Tulalip a month or so ago when they did that listening session for about the residential schools. And she seemed, she seems fabulous. She seems like a great secretary of interior and a, obviously a great friend to indigenous people all over the United States. So is it, I mean, are things, are quote unquote things better than they were five, 10, 20 years ago? Um, I think you know that's that's out really outside my uh, area of expertise. But just as a tribal member, um, I would say that things are are we we we've made advances. I don't know if they're yeah. much better. Like I said, there's yeah we're still battling some of the same battles that we've been, but we've made advances in other places. I mean, we have uh, think of the the renaming um, of places like in Gig Harbor who are making an effort to. Uh, help us to reclaim our our history through the language, um, you know, where they uh, renamed a part of the harbor, the estuary. We used to be called Austin Estuary. Now it's Tuwalkas. 
Oh wow! Estuary. That's yeah, great. I, mean, I, I love I love the the renaming stuff. The is awesome. I think that's just the, that's a great way because those names become just part of the dialogue, part of the conversation of every mm-hmm. day. Just you know, people driving around or, or boating around or whatever, and that's those go that, that and that will that goes such a long way. Um, now, well, and it's our our, our language department, uh, Amber uh, yeah, yeah. Hayward. She's the she's the uh, program uh, director for the language department, but she made the really good point that you know you go to Hawaii. And you all, you 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 make a concerted effort to know the the areas in Hawaii, right? Absolutely. People can say Honolulu. People can say uh, Waikiki. Yeah. Um, and they, they they so you can learn uh, Polynesian. You can learn Tosuseed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Polynesian. That's, that's uh, those letters are kind of tough. I you know I look at that sometime and. I I I am I'm a terrible Lachute Seed scholar. I've tried, but I have not been able to make progress on that. But so, what are you guys doing in terms of language preservation? What What do those activities look like for for your office? Uh, we we work real hard with our language department to ensure that the museum had language throughout. Again, we're going with the um, narrative that we were you know from from past to present, so that we're still here and our language is still being spoken. And so, uh, for instance, in the museum, uh, you will see you're you're greeted by the language. The, the language is all first with English in subscript uh, when possible. Um, and all the stories are, are told in shoot seat first with, with the written language followed by the English. So you can, you know, we're really driving home the point that uh, the shoot the language that the Puyallup people were still speaking a language today. And are there, I mean, so in terms of still speaking today, I mean, what does that mean? Are there people who are fluent, who you've recorded or the language department's recorded? Or kind of what does that I mean, what does that mean? So, unfortunately, we don't have any, um, according to our language department, we don't have any native speakers anymore okay. uh, due to the effects of the boarding school era yeah. uh, where the language was literally be- beaten out of our our, our ancestors. Yeah. Um, you know, those, those uh, little warriors, they had to fight to preserve the language that we have today. And, you know, so what we have left, we have, uh, we do have over 200 speakers today that um, help tribal members learn the language and then general community that wants to learn as well. Wow. Um, but yeah, so there's over 200 teachers, but uh, fluent in Tulsa yeah, we, we don't have anymore just because of oh, uh, yeah. you know, the effects of, of boarding school. That absolutely makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, and in terms of the general public uh, or someone who wants to be a, a better Tulsa scholar, what are there programs that you guys offer or is it sort of... Um, I believe... The the Puyallup language has a, their website. I would, I would encourage okay. the general public okay. to go there. Puyallup Tribal Language. Okay. Um, just Google that. Uh, the, yeah. The, the Lachute Seed Program, our Tulshute Seed Program. Sorry. I can put um, a link at the Cascade of History Facebook page. That's great. So. Yeah, and they they can get they can get all that information. That's terrific. And are there any initiatives that are you guys are working on, or interesting archaeological sites, or other stuff you can kind of tell us about that you might have might be in the offing, or might be sort of uh, that you guys are currently uh, doing project work on. Uh, currently, we're you know yes, archaeology is all over, um, is alive and well all throughout yeah. um, our, our our area. Um, we have we we have several several projects that you know unfortunately can't go into, but of course, yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so from Tacoma up to um, out towards you know the, the mountains, we have active archaeology going on um, with uh, you know finding artifacts and and preserving our history that way. That's very and cool. We're we're working on you know again the boarding school era was such a was such a, a huge time in our history so we are you know constantly working on uh, getting testimony uh, recording so right now our biggest thing is is working with our elders and uh, the general community as well that has information on on uh, our history and so we're, we're really focusing on the elders and getting their story uh, preserved so that we can hear their history and and and. Have and I mean, kind of a big general question about indigenous history um, and, and a, 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 an oral culture, you know, before European Americans and other Europeans arrived, you know, with their written histories and written culture that, you know, obviously dominate the dialogue for the last 200 years. Um, and there's sometimes it feels like there's a reluctance to share the the indigenous stories that have been part of oral tradition because they're, they're, you know, they're sacred. It's not just something that's mm-hmm. for anyone to consume. Mm-hmm. How do you balance that with wanting to share those stories in a way that, you know, so everyone in, in Western Washington can understand the Puyallup tribe's history 
how, as it fits into the versions of history they've been told from that more sort of European kind of written perspective for these these last two hundred years. I, for that, you know, we we ha- we share the stories, you know, within within our own community. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I would encourage people as they have community events there that they're made aware of. Like, for instance, we have Canoe Journey coming up in July. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, out, out at Muckleshoot, I encourage the public to attend that. That's when they'll be able to see and hear the stories that the public can hear. They'll okay. be able to witness the culture, witness our traditions. Our, our, our dances, uh, and just our general way of life. I mean, you want to know what life was like 100 years ago, go to a canoe journey, and you'll see the, it's, you know, we were a happy people. We 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 poked fun at each other. Uh, we shared stories. We sang songs. We ate lots of food. That is, you know, we partied for a week straight, and that's exactly what canoe journey is. Yeah. And uh, so people really want to get to know the Pacific Northwest cultures and tribes. You know, I, I encourage people to attend Kidney Journey. Very nice. Nice. It's, it's all human history. You know, it's all, yeah. you know, it's, it's, that's the thing that it's the, the similarities and the universality of it. That's just, that's so, it's just cool. I love it. Anyway, I really appreciate yeah. you taking time on a Sunday night to join us on Cascade of History. I'm no going to try and make it down to the museum sometime in the next month or so, and I'll put information on the Cascade of History Facebook page. And I hope we can have you back again sometime and hear about other projects and just kind of keep talking about this stuff because there's so many great stories to share, and I, I want to hear them all, so... Thank, thank you, Brandon Rainer, for joining us on Cascade of History. All right, my pleasure. Have a good night. Bye-bye. All right, hi. Brandon Rainon from the Puyallup Tribe. He's the director there and the uh, the history and the tribal preservation tribal historic preservation officer. All right, so we have just a few minutes left on the show. We're going to try and get in touch with Anthony Long, who works for the Museum of History and Industry. They have a project that's uh, it's called the... Um, Oh, what is it called? The Everyday Hero Award, and the nominations are going to be open for it. I'm going to see if we can just get him on the line right now. Let's see. Anthony Long, can you hear me? Yes, I can. You're on the air with us live here on Cascade of History from Space 101.1 FM in Seattle. Um, So I was just saying a few moments ago I was talking about this um, Everyday Hero project that's coming up. I know this only goes back a couple years, and it has its origins in the pandemic. Yes. So how did it how did it come to be and kind of tell us what it is? Yes, uh, so the Everyday Hero uh, Award came about uh, to celebrate uh, those individuals or organizations that have been positively impacting our city, our nation, and our collective quality of life. Um, our first uh, go around of the award went out to the Harborview Medical Center team uh, for their work during the pandemic, and then ever since then we've been rewarding those individuals or organizations. Uh, for their hard work and bringing innovative ways of thinking and taking action uh, to improve the quality of life of the community and make community life stronger. Now, Museum of History and Industry, I worked there. I was there from 99 to 2006, and I used to go there when I was a kid, the old one in Montlake. And it was always sort of, you know, it was a museum. It had kind of static displays, and, you know, we had interactive stuff, you know, in the, in the kind of uh, most rudimentary form. The newer museum there, which has been, I think, for 11 years now down at um, Lake Union Park, whole other ballgame, whole other level of, of engagement. <laughs> and that's it's different, like, you know, just in a very cool way. Um, I guess I'm trying to say that it seems like the old Mohai that I knew, we would never would have had an everyday hero award. This seems like it fits in. Why does Mohai uh, think it's important to recognize people who are doing stuff like you describe? Uh, uh, yes. Um, uh, we believe, you know, history uh, is being made every day. Yeah. Um, and we want to take the time um, in, in, in that with that award to recognize those um, who are making the history um, and reward them at our annual uh, History Makers Gala. Uh, we celebrate in the fall uh, just as a thank you and just to recognize and honor their work in uh, you know making history every day. I think that's cool because there is. It seems like in the last couple of years, in particular, I, I'm speaking mainly of the sort of the pandemic era. The um, the George Floyd era, the, I don't know, the post-January 6th era, um, you know, even the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it feels like we're living in a very intense period of history right now. And I know um, Mohai and the State History Museum in Tacoma and uh, it's the History Museum in Spokane, they were collecting artifacts during the pandemic, you know, sort of pandemic-related signage and, you know, uh, personal protective equipment. 
you know, it was sort of all sort of happening in real time. And so it makes sense to have an award program that, that is sort of focused on people who are doing heroic things in a time where, you know, <laughs> those heroic things are, are certainly helpful and kind of as a, as a uh, I don't know, um, a way of tempering all the other, all the ba- other bad news. Um, how do people uh, submit nominations for this, this program? How do they, what, what do they do? Uh, yes, um, they can go on mohai.org uh, where they can find, uh, they can click on the link and there's uh, a rollout of the uh, award and a nomination form they can click and fill out. Also, uh, we have the link on our social media pages on Instagram and Facebook. And when's the deadline? The deadline is uh, June 15th. 2023. Okay, so they have uh, about a month, a little, a little less than a month, I guess. And um, you, you talked about the University of Washington Medical Center people in 2020. Who were some of the other? Did you name all the other winners from last year or the year before as well? Yes. Uh, last year, uh, we we uh, honored uh, Alimentando Al Pueblo. They were the only Latinx food bank in the country uh, during the pandemic. Um, and we also awarded J.M. Wong, uh, a long a, a long time advocate and change maker, um, dedicated to the liberation liberation movement, particularly in creating cultures of learning, compassion, and healing with, within Seattle's Asian American community. Got it. Okay. Now, I guess you know the pandemic; it's not over. Obviously, there's still people contracting and dying from from COVID as as we speak. But it feels like the uh, I know that the state emergency has been dialed back and we're kind of in, uh, on paper anyway, we're back to normal times. And it feels a lot more normal than it did even six months ago to me. Um, I expect, though, do you think that the, the crop of nominees you'll get this year will still be fairly COVID-focused? Or are, do you have any, any, any uh, dark horse favorites that you know or have already been submitted or anyone you're sort of already pulling for? Or do you want, do you want people to particularly look for things that go beyond this? what we've had the last couple of years that are sort of in different categories? Uh, I don't have a dark horse. Uh, we're just definitely looking for somebody uh, who is innovative, you know, in just improving the quality of life and just making the community stronger. Got it. That sounds really good. All right. Well, Anthony Long, uh, good luck with the um, Everyday Hero Project. And I know you're also collecting nominations for educators, and that's a little more specialized, I think, that uh, who uh, just I mean, who could nominate for the educator uh, awards? Is that anybody or is it just related specifically school districts and schools and stuff uh anybody um we we we, we don't uh limit it to uh, um you know just teachers um we we also look for uh, folks that work in uh institutions um that who are in a education uh uh, environment whether it's a classroom after school programs community spaces or uh, cultural or educational organizations got all right. Well, I'm glad the Mohai is doing what it does is there to do what it does for Seattle history and for Northwest history with that amazing photo collection, and that terrific museum there. So, Anthony Long, thanks for joining us tonight on Cascade of History, and good luck with your project. And let's let's have you back later to hear about who the winners are back in the fall. If that's all right. Definitely. All right. Good night. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you. Bye bye. Anthony Long with the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle and their Everyday Hero Project. And like I do with all the. Uh, all the guests who appear on the show, we usually put up a, a Facebook post with links to relevant links to their projects and pages and that sort of thing. And I'll do that for Anthony, of course. Um, I want to thank Randy Dixon for joining us and telling us about Relight the Night in Pocatello, Idaho. Yeah, such a cool project. I love that idea of uh, vintage neon signs being thoughtfully restored, uh, raising money to pay for the electricity and keep them illuminated going into the future, and then using it as a, as a cultural tourism, as a economic development catalyst. It's very cool. Um, I want to thank Brandon Raynon from the Puyallup Tribe for joining us and talking about their new mini-museum. And, uh, of course, we've got uh, lots of stuff coming up in the future. We are not, we won't be live next weekend. It's the Memorial Day weekend holiday. And the following weekend, I'll be off as well. But um, I'm going to be doing a new show on Space 101.1 FM that's going to be the last Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m., live from the Wallingford Farmer's Market. The show is called The Wallingford Local. I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be like yet, sort of folksy. Um, we'll talk to people at the Farmer's Market. We'll have historians on and performers and that sort of thing. That will be the last Wednesday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m., The Wallingford Local. And we'll be back here with Cascade of History in a couple weeks. In the meantime, check out the podcast. Go to the space101fm.org website for all kinds of great information. I'm Felix Bunnell with Cascade of History, and thanks for joining us for our live weekly broadcast every Sunday at 8 p.m. Pacific time, and have a great week.
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell. Yeah.